you have your Bibles, if you would open to Genesis chapter 35. We began this series the first Sunday of this year, looking at the life of Abraham. And as I don't usually give titles to my sermons, it often falls on someone else to do that. And Dave gave this series the title, Trial and Grace. It's an appropriate title which revealed foresight, great foresight on Dave's part. Trial and grace are the themes we see in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And yet as I was preparing, I thought, wait a minute, we really haven't talked about the nature of trials, the matter of trials. And so to, to sort of prepare us to continue in this series, I thought we should look at the issue of trials. And to do this, I think the key passage is found in the book of James at the beginning of his epistle, when he says, quite shockingly, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. What is a trial? Well, there are two things to keep in mind. First of all, when James writes, when you face trials of many kinds, um, the verb face in the King James is when you fall uh, into, I think, diverse temptations. Um, And in the ESV, when you meet various trials. But the word that James uses is the same word that Jesus did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that he fell among thieves. He was ambushed. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there he was ambushed. I think ambush is, in fact, the right word to use. It indicates the unexpected nature of trials. They're not always what we anticipate, and they're not the kind that we anticipate. Somehow, it's tempting to think, if, if I could just see it coming, if I just knew the nature of the trial that is coming my way, I would be able to handle it a lot better. But in reality, trials ambush us. They don't always come in the form that we expect or from the sources that we expect. We're looking in one direction, and in fact, it comes from another direction. And I think a great example of this is Peter when he denied the Lord Jesus. I think he would have never, ever expected that it would be a maiden, a young girl, who would be the cause of him to deny that he knew the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing to consider. The second is, if you read the first chapter of James, he starts out by talking about trials, and then he shifts at verse number 13 to temptation. Um, So he says, Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In the very next verse, verse 13, When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. So what we find is that there are two things that are happening here with the nature of trial. The first is that it's an outward thing. It's something that comes against you, and it is a form of testing. Peter writes, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't freak out. Don't say, 
How could this possibly happen? I'm a Christian. No, these things happen. These trials come our ways. But there's another type of trial, and it's not from outside. It's from inside. It is an enticement to sin or to disobedience. So Paul writes to Timothy, those who want to get rich fall into temptations and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So James deals first with the external trials, and then the second part he deals with internal temptations, but in fact they all fall under the category of trials. Trials involve the testing of our faith, and the testing of our faith gives us or proves staying power, and when this has finished, it brings maturity and completeness. So there are the outward trials, there are the inward enticements to disobedience. So which is the trial? Is it the outward or is it the inward? Well, it's both. Not always at the same time. Maybe one one day and another the next day. The trials which come our way, on the one hand, give us an opportunity to go forward, to trust God, to obey him, to do what he says. On the other hand, they are temptations to go back, to fall back to not obey God, which means that every trial may become a temptation. Trials of their own, by themselves, are not necessarily temptations. What he is saying, what James is telling us, is that our reaction to it, I think, will determine whether or not it is a trial for endurance or it becomes a temptation to go backwards. So we have to make a decision. Will we go forward with God? Will we trust him? Will we obey him? Or will we listen to the voice inside of us that says, yeah, that's, that's a little scary. Maybe we should do something else. Or maybe I, I want to do what I want to do. Or did God really say that? As Satan said to Eve in the garden. These are the things we find in the life of Jacob. Consider that when he left Paddan Aram, he left his father-in-law, who is also his employer. By the way, I mentioned this last week. There are three times in Genesis where it says that Jacob left Paddan Aram. This is the first one. He notices that his brothers-in-law, his father-in-law are looking at him differently. They are thinking that he has somehow cheated them and he's gotten wealthy while they have not. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So here's a command. God says, this is what you're going to do. And this can in fact become a trial. Is he going to obey or is he going to disobey? Well, in some sense he does obey, but he sneaks away with his family and his household uh, in, in, in spite of the fact that the Lord said, I will be with you. Laban and his group catch up with them in Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River. And after a tense confrontation, they make a covenant and Laban goes home. Jacob also went his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. This is our third Sunday, I think, for me to talk about this. But I think it's really crucial to understanding not only what comes next in the life of Jacob, but what happens in our lives. 
Jacob has left Laban. He's left Paddan Aram. He's going back to his father Isaac. Okay? And on the way he is met by the angels of God. He and his family have set up camp and he notices there's another camp over there. It's the camp of God. It's where the angels are. We're not told about the encounter, you know, how long it lasted, its, you know, its purpose and all that. But something is, uh, emerges in this, and that is something that Jacob had failed to recognize, and I think that we do, is there is a reality that we cannot see. We tend to go by our senses, and that, you know, that's what we make our decisions on, and that's where the temptation comes. I see danger, and, or I perceive it, and I think there's no other way for me to get out of it but to do something wrong. Yeah, that's, there is a reality that we cannot see. It is not just Jacob and his family who are traveling back to the promised land. God's messengers, God's angels are with him. So the trial with Laban is over. And you could say that, that Jacob passed that test because he obeyed even though he snuck off. But he is in fact on going on his way back to the promised land. Now he's waiting for the next trial his meeting with his brother Esau. This is the one that he anticipates. He makes plans. He sends flocks of animals ahead to somehow bribe and appease his brother. He divides his family into two groups so that if Esau attacks one, the other one will survive. He's ready for this trial. And then boom, he gets ambushed. He knows Esau is coming. But he doesn't see this ambush when a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Jacob never expected this. And that's the nature of trials. It's not what we expect. We're looking in one direction and it comes from another direction altogether. And yes, he was ambushed. And how would Jacob respond to this trial? Imagine you're alone and suddenly somebody starts wrestling with you and it goes on and on and on. How are you going to respond? He responds in faith. I will not let you go unless you bless me. There's an awareness here that this is not simply some human being. This is God's presence. This is God, in fact, engaging him. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God to face, saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And Jacob is given a new name, Israel. You will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Then comes the anticipated trial. And Jacob is scared. Will his brother remember what he did 20 years earlier? Is his brother still holding a grudge? Will his brother try to harm him? And what happens is not what he expects at all. He himself, that's Jacob, went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. There's reconciliation, totally unexpected on Jacob's part. And Esau now in reconciliation says, listen, why don't we travel together? You know, he's got 400 men. Let's, you know, we can keep you uh, protected as you travel. 
But Jacob at this point is not living in faith. He has obeyed God, but kind of. And so he says, no, 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 um, you go on ahead. You know, I've got these children and the cows have uh, calves and the ewes have lambs. And if, you know, if we go with you, then some of them might die along the way. And here we see the inner enticement. He is afraid. He's afraid. And because he's afraid, he does not embrace Esau's offer. And Esau goes back to Seir, that is, near the Dead Sea. But there's something else that happened. This is a trial, and Jacob fails this trial because instead of continuing on the journey to see Isaac, his father, as God commanded, he goes a little bit north to Succoth. And there he builds a settlement. He builds booths, he builds uh, uh, corrals for the animals. And as we saw last week, um, he may have stayed there as long as 10 years. Well, that's not what God told him to do. God told him to go back to his father and I will be with you. Well, obviously he was in the meeting with Esau and yet Jacob, because of his fear, does not obey. Then we are told after a period of time, he moves across the Jordan River to Shechem, which is in northern Israel. This is the second account of him leaving Paddan Aram. Uh, this is in chapter 33, verse 18. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons, uh, the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And this is another trial which Jacob fails. Rather than going to Isaac in the south, he in fact decides to settle near Shechem, which again is in northern Israel. And he does this by buying land. God said that he would give the land to him and his descendants. But now he is buying the land. And I think, to be fair to Jacob, I don't think he said, oh, this is a trial from God. I'm being tested. He just thought this is a thing I should do. But in fact, the trial was, are you going to obey God? And the answer was no. But I think he thought, I am obeying, because he built an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel. That is, the God, the God of Israel. It is like in our prayer of confession that we think that we're on the narrow way because we say, Lord, Lord. Compromise is the same as disobedience. And Jacob compromised. He did not do what God had commanded him to do. And his family suffers the consequences. We saw this last week. His only daughter, Dinah, is raped by Shechem, the favorite son of Hamor, who was the leader of that town. His sons, Shechem wants to marry Dinah, but the sons are so outraged at what has happened to their sister that they deceitfully say, because he says, whatever you want, whatever price you want, I want your sister. And they say, okay, well, we can't let her just marry anyone. You have to be circumcised. All the men in your city have to be circumcised. The sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. 
you have to be circumcised. They acted deceitfully. And then two of Jacob's sons, his second and third sons, Simeon and Levi, became mass murderers. They massacred all the males of the city. And his other sons, though they did not participate in the massacre, they looted, they stole everything from the city of Shechem. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else in the city, everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking plunder, everything in the houses. So it's not just Simeon and Levi. Yes, they are the mass murderers. But their brothers also participated in this. And by the way, the brothers were complicit because they said, you all need to be circumcised before we let you marry our sister. Again, this is a trial for Jacob. What is he going to do? And it is his inner fear. It is his fear that leads him to say to his sons, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Not a word about his daughter, what has happened to her. It's all about me, my household. So Jacob failed once again, but God is gracious. And if you look at chapter 35, verse 1, then the Lord said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. God has not forgotten about Jacob. Jacob has failed test trial after trial after trial. God has not forgotten about him. And by the way, it is God who initiates. It isn't Jacob doesn't go to God and say, listen, I promise I'll be good. I promise from now on I'll obey you. It is God who initiates and says, listen, you need to leave Shechem and you need to go up to Bethel. Okay? Go to Bethel, which means the house of God, where he had the dream, the stairway to heaven. Settle there, not Shechem, but in Bethel, and build an altar and worship me there. And now this is a trial again. Is Jacob going to obey? There might be a certain amount of security if he stays in Shechem, but if his whole household is moving across the country, they could be attacked by neighboring uh, peoples. So will he obey or not? And he does. Verse number two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Jacob instructs his household, and he gives them three commands. As God gave him three, he gives them, first of all, get rid of the foreign gods. Secondly, purify yourselves or cleanse yourselves, bathe. And thirdly, change your clothes. I think it's worth noting that apparently Jacob knew that people in his household were worshiping false gods and he hadn't done anything about it. But we shouldn't be surprised that he tolerated it because he compromised by living in Succoth 
and then in Shechem. And we are not told, at least in the text, that God said to Jacob, oh, by the way, before you go to Bethel, tell your people to get rid of all these foreign gods. This is something Jacob does in faith. He recognizes, oh, if I'm going to go up to Bethel and worship God, then we need to get rid of all the impurity in my household and all these foreign gods. And the result of his obedience is found in verse number five. They, then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the, the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Because of his obedience, I would say, God protects him. Jacob had been afraid, I would say, because he had not been obedient. Now that he has been obedient, the Lord will protect him. And by the way, it's interesting that he says to his household, we're going up to Bethel, we're going to build an altar and worship God, who has been with me every step of the way. Like, really, Jacob? Is God's been with you? Then why, why did you stay in Succoth? Why did you stay in Shechem? Why... Why didn't you obey God and go down to Isaac? But now his eyes have been opened. There is an awareness that, in fact, God has been with him. Within verse number six, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. It's where God revealed his grace to him in a magnificent way in his dream. And now we come to the third telling of Jacob's leaving Paddan Aram. Look at verse number nine. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. It's like, wait a minute, this, I'm having deja vu all over again. I mean, this is the third time that we're told that he left Paddan Aram. But there's more. Verse 10, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. And God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Again, you'll notice this is the third telling of him leaving Paddan Aram. It's almost as though Moses, in writing this, is starting the story all over again. It's like, yeah, the first time didn't turn out so well. Second time, not so. Okay, this third time, as he tells the story, that in fact he acts in faith. Jacob is re renamed Israel. Yeah, well, we, we knew that about you know, the man who wrestled with him all night. God reveals himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he repeats, he renews the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as well. And in turn, Jacob worships God. Although he was told to settle in Bethel, um, we are told that Jacob's household moved on, but we're not given a time frame. And we'll see in a few minutes, they may have in fact been there for quite a long time. Now we come to verse number 16, the death of his beloved Rachel. Then they moved on from Bethel 
while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died, was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day the pillar marks Rachel's tomb. So they're traveling south. Finally, they're on the road to go and see Isaac. Rachel goes into labor, has a difficult time. It results in her death. Um, But the midwife comforts her, and I don't know if you find this strange, and maybe it's just because of the time in which we live. The comfort from the midwife is not, oh, don't worry, you're not going to die. The comfort is, don't worry, you have another son. And as she's dying, she names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my trouble. But Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, that means son of my right hand. The birth of Benjamin was, in fact, an answer to Rachel's prayer. You may remember that she named her first son Joseph, and Joseph means may he add. And she said, may the Lord add to me another son. And in fact, the Lord did add another son that is Benjamin. Having set up a pillar in Bethel, Jacob sets up another pillar, this time to mark Rachel's tomb. The location of this tomb is in the tribe of Benjamin, which will come centuries later, um, not in where Jerusalem is, where Judah is, where Bethlehem is. And if, in fact, you were to take a tour today of the Holy Land in Israel, the tour guide would probably take you to the wrong place. He would take you to some place near Bethlehem. It's actually north of Jerusalem. They're on their way to Ephrath, but they're about 15 miles away uh, when she dies. 900 years later, the marker is still there. Um, This is when Saul uh, is confronted by Samuel before he becomes king and says... When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. And then more than 400 years after that, Jeremiah talks about it. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Ramah is in the territory of Benjamin, It's close to where Rachel died. It's a verse, by the way, that is referred to in Matthew 2, the slaughter of the innocents. It is there that Rachel died and wept, but she had a son, and the son was Benjamin. I would argue that the death of his beloved Rachel was a trial that could have caused Jacob to lose heart, to lose faith. He didn't want to marry Leah, His father-in-law tricked him. It's Rachel who he loved. And now the wife that he loves has been taken. But he doesn't lose heart. As one writer put it, the pillar set up so soon after verse 14, that is in Bethel, he built the pillar there, or set up a pillar. It was a witness to the transience and pain 
which are one sign of existence. We are here for such a short time, and oftentimes pain is involved, while its fellow commemorated the goodness and mercy which are on the other side. Rachel's tomb is death, pain, separation, but at Bethel we have the goodness, we have the mercy of God. Then we have two verses that I think a lot of people, if they had their way, would be taken out of the Bible. Why is it here? Verse 21. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent near Megdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had 12 sons. The family had moved on. They're much closer now to Bethlehem, a place called Migdal Eder. And while they're there, Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, the first son from Leah, um, goes and sleeps with his father's concubine, the handmaiden that had been given to Rachel. She was the mother of Dan and Naphtali. What Reuben did was offensive, and not because it was adultery. Um, It was adultery. Um, It wasn't incest in a technical sense, because Bilhah is not his mother. Uh, Leah is his mother. But it was a shameful offense against his father. We're told that Jacob knew about it. We're not told what he did about it. But as with Simeon and Levi... At the end of his life, Jacob gives a prophecy about what's going to happen to his sons. And he addresses Reuben directly. Simeon and Levi know. He sort of talks about them in the third person. But Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn, my might, the sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, and onto my couch and defiled it. What he did was shameful. It was wrong. Beyond adultery, it was an offense against his father. So why is it mentioned in scripture? Reuben was the firstborn. The firstborn gets the birthright. And it would seem that it would go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Reuben. But it doesn't because of what Reuben did. And you say, okay, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Simeon. No, because of the massacre. Okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. No. It is the fourth son of Leah, Judah, through whom the promises will be fulfilled and the Messiah will come. Then we're told that these are, here, these are the sons of Jacob. If you look at verse 23, the sons of Leah, uh, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. That is with the exception of Benjamin. So why is this mentioned now? Because now the number is complete. The 12 sons of Jacob. These are the 12 sons of Israel 
who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the death of Rachel, we have the offense of Reuben, and now we have another death, the death of Isaac. Verse 27, Jacob came home to his father Isaac and Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Finally, Jacob makes it home to his father, who's living near Hebron, um, where his father lived and where his grandfather had lived, where Abraham had lived. At the age of 180, Isaac dies. And this is helpful. It gives, you know, if you do some calculations, he was 137 when he thought he was going to die. Do you remember that? Isaac thought he was going to die, so he told Esau, I want to give you the blessing. So go out and get some animal and cook it for me the way you know I like it, and then I will give you the blessing. Jacob, with the help of his mother, in fact, deceived his father and got the blessing, and then he had to leave. So he's 137. Jacob stays with Laban 20 years, so Isaac's 157. There's 23 years between leaving Laban and finally going to see his father Isaac. 23 years. That's how long it took Jacob to obey the command of God. It means that he dawdled in Succoth and Shechem. He might have been in Bethel for a number of years as well. But he doesn't go straight home the way that God commanded him. Just a side note, nothing is said about Rebecca. We may assume, I think safely, that she had already died, probably before Jacob returned to Canaan. On his deathbed, uh, Jacob gives instructions about what they are to do with his body. And he says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. And Jacob's like, I want to be buried there. So Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. I find it interesting that though Rachel is the one he loved, Leah is the one who is laid to rest along with Isaac, Rebekah, Abraham, and Sarah. The death of Isaac is the end of the second generation. The first generation is Abraham. The second generation is Isaac. And now it is Jacob's turn. He was chosen in grace to be the line through which the promises would be made. But then we come to chapter 36. And if, if you're reading through the Bible, it's like, why is this here? Because in chapter 36, we have the descendants of Esau. Well, Esau is not the chosen one. Jacob is. So why are you telling us about Esau? Um, we find a pattern in Scripture particularly in the book of Genesis, I would say in Genesis, that the author wants to tie up loose ends. He does this in chapter 25. When Abraham dies, 
Ishmael and Isaac bury their father. And then we're given a list of the sons of Ishmael. And then Ishmael goes off stage. He's no longer part of the story. In the same way here, Esau is not insignificant. He's the twin brother of Jacob. But he is not the one through whom the promises will be fulfilled. But before we leave him, we are told his story and of his descendants. So in the first eight verses, we have his immediate family. We're told about his wives and his sons and daughters. Then in verses 9 to 14, his sons and grandsons. Verses 15 to 19, the chiefs that descended from him. Verses 20 to 30, the chiefs of the Horites. Esau had intermarried with them. And then finally, the king of Edom, the kings of Edom, 31 to 39, and the final list of chiefs at the end. So now Ishmael is off stage, Esau is off stage, Abraham and Isaac have died, and now it is Jacob with his 12 sons. And the Lord willing, we will look at this next week, but now we come to the story of Jacob, which will occupy the rest of the book of Genesis. God told Abraham that there would be a time when his descendants would be under foreign domination. That in fact, until the iniquity of the Amorites would be full, the land of Canaan then would be ripe for taking, but until then, they would be slaves under another power. It is the story of Joseph that shows us how in fact this happens. And it illustrates a really interesting pattern, and the Lord willing, we will see how that Joseph is, in fact, a type of the Lord Jesus. It is the rejection of God's chosen one because of envy and unbelief that leads to this person's suffering, but in their suffering, they become salvation for their people. So Joseph is rejected by his brothers. He's his father's favorite because Rachel was the wife that he loved. Um, And the brothers initially think to kill him, but instead they sell him into slavery. What a wicked thing to do. But if they hadn't done that, Joseph wouldn't have gone to Egypt and all the things that we will see the Lord willing in the weeks to come could have never happened. So it is their hatred and their envy and their unbelief that leads them to do something, but in fact, it works to God's plan. And in the same way, if Jesus had not been rejected, if he had not been killed, if he had not been crucified, then we would have no hope and no salvation. And this is the great mystery of God's providence, how the things that we think are so terrible, we don't know the end of the story, but God does. And the story of Joseph leads to the saving of Jacob's household. As I said at the beginning, the story of Abraham and his descendants is one of trial and grace. We saw it in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. We have seen it in the life of Jacob, but also in the life of Levi. Before he died, Jacob prophesied what would happen to his son's descendants. We talked about this briefly last week. And he spoke of Simeon and Levi together. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger 
and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Jacob says these are two of a kind. Yeah, they're brothers, but they are two of a kind. They are men of violence. And their anger should be cursed. It is so fierce and their fury so cruel. And when in the future Israel takes over the promised land, they will be scattered. There won't be a, an area that you say, oh, this belongs to Simeon. Like you would say this belongs to Benjamin or to Judah. They will be scattered. As I said last week, Simeon was pretty much absorbed by the tribe of Judah. But Levi was scattered throughout Israel because Levi became the tribe of priests. And there is great grace that God takes the descendants of a mass murderer who used the sacred sign of the covenant, circumcision, as an instrument to kill his enemies. He used it as a way to weaken them, and then he went in and killed them. And yet God makes him the tribe of priests. This is grace. Simeon, on the other hand, decreased by two-thirds in the wilderness. When they left Egypt, there were more than 59,000 people in the tribe of Simeon. By the time they get to the Jordan River to cross into the Promised Land, there are 22,000. They've decreased by two-thirds. And at the end of his life, Moses blesses the tribes. He gives a blessing. It's in Deuteronomy 33. He blesses the tribes. And you know what? He doesn't mention Simeon. He does not mention Simeon. One might complain, Damon, that's not fair. Why does Levi, why do the Levites get to be priests and Simeon pretty much disappears? I would remind you of the quote for meditation today from Tim Keller. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And in fact, I would add that we do not deserve any grace from God. One cannot point the finger at God and say, you're unfair. We are more sinful than we ever were aware of. But the quote continued, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. God is a God of grace. And it is in Jesus Christ that this grace has been revealed. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we've been good. I I find the beginning of chapter 35 really fascinating. It isn't that Jacob says, okay, I promise I'll be a good boy from now on. I'll obey you. I'll do whatever you say. No, it's God who takes the initiative. It is God who reaches down and says, listen, it's time for you to move on. You need to go to Bethel and build an altar there. Let's pray together. Our Father, grace is a word that we throw around, I think, too casually. And we've lost the richness of the word. It is that which we do not deserve and that which you give freely. Trials come our way in our lives. 
They ambush us. They come when we least expect them and not from the direction we expect. We have a choice to either obey you or to disobey you. And if left to our own devices, we do not have the strength in our own to do what is right. We look to you for grace, for favor, for the strength to be obedient sons and daughters. There might be the temptation to look at Jacob and sort of shake our heads and say, why did he not obey? We would love to have you speak to us directly and make promises to us as you did to Jacob. And yet he did not obey you. But in truth, you have made promises. You have said, I will never leave you or forsake you. May we trust you. May we face each trial with obedience. May we recognize that all the trials do not come from outside of us. Many, if not most, come from within us our own fearfulness, just like Jacob. Again, I thank you for your grace and your great love. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. And as we walk through the world this week, may we be reminded of the camp of God, that the things we cannot see are right there with us. You through your angels are standing right next to us. You've not abandoned us. You know exactly what's going on in our lives. And we give thanks for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.